So today, we are beginning a series where we're going to try to look at the whole Bible in five weeks, which even, it's even more uh, ambitious when you realize the first two weeks I'm only going to cover three chapters. Uh, but if you have one of these cards, you can see where we're going for the, the weeks to come, or at least little teaser titles of where we're going. Uh, but we're going to cover the whole Bible in five weeks. And, and at first thought, you might think, how could that ever happen? Um, how could you cover all the commands and the, the rules and all the stuff that the Bible's got to cover? I mean, that's what the Bible is, right? It's just this big collection of advice and rules and laws. I mean, how could you possibly cover all that in five weeks? Well, you can't. Um, uh, but really, the Bible is not primarily a collection of rules or advice. Um, now, I, admittedly, I, c- I can forgive you for, for, for thinking that if you've only been with us for the last few months, because for the last three months, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs, which is a book that's all about God's advice, his wisdom for how to live life. And that's there. I mean, that, that is, those are big chunks of the Bible where God gives us instruction as to how we are supposed to live. But if you could think about it as like a network of streets. Those, those things, those, the laws, the advice, the instruction from God on how to live, those are more like the, the streets that branch off of the main artery. There's maybe cul-de-sacs. They're, they're wonderful cul-de-sacs, great views. You, know, great, you should live there. They're, they're good. But the main boulevard of the Bible, the main street, is actually one continuous storyline from beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation. The Bible is primarily a story a true story. Don't, don't think I'm saying it's a made-up story. It's a true story, but it's a story. It's a story that tells us how everything began, that tells us what went wrong, that tells us how it can be fixed, and that tells us where we're headed. Uh, the Bible is the original epic. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the beginning. And it's going to be helpful if you've got a Bible with you this morning. We're not going to put the things on the screen like we were with Proverbs because we're, going to, we're not jumping around so much. We're just going to be in one passage. So if you've got a Bible or if you can grab the ones in front of you, it's really easy. We're in Genesis 1. So flip past the table of contents and you're there. Okay, we're going to start at the beginning today. And our focus is going to be the highlights of the first two chapters of the Bible where God paints for us a beautiful picture of life as it started, life as it was meant to be. What I'm going to do to start us off this morning, I'm going to read uh, the first eight verses, then I'll summarize a little bit, and then I'll pick it up again and read in verse 31 of chapter 1, so you can follow along with me as I read aloud. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God God called the expanse heaven. And there was the evening and the morning, the second day. And then it continues, and the same pattern goes on. The the third day, uh, God creates dry land. 
and, and plants to grow there. The fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars and places them in the heavens. And then the, uh, the fifth day, God creates uh, animals to, to go in the sea and birds to fly in the air. And then the sixth day, he creates land animals. And the pinnacle of creation then is man and woman made in the image of God. At the end of the sixth day then, Genesis 1, 31, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, it pains me to skip, but we're going to cover the whole Bible in five weeks. We're going to skip some stuff. But what we see here is this beautiful beginning to a beautiful story. God is showing us how the world began. And as you read this, if you take time to let it soak, soak in you and just uh, let it permeate uh, as, as you read, you, you get the sense, at least in my heart, there's a, a resonance. Like, yes. Yes, this is the way life was supposed to be. Yes, this, this, this beauty, this, this order, this, this creation, this perfection, this is how it was supposed to be. And what I want to do as we look at this this morning is I want to highlight for you three things. Three things that are here that, that tell us this is how life was meant to be. When God created the world, this is how it was meant to be. Three things that resonate with our hearts. We say, yes, you're right, that's how the world was supposed to be. I want to see that uh, the Bible adequately explains for us why we feel like the world is supposed to be this way. And in challenge to that, why some of the other stories, primarily the story that we hear of, of uh, or evolution and materialistic beginnings out of nothing, really doesn't answer our heart's longings as for why we think the world should be this way. We're going to see that the world was meant to be full of beauty. The world was meant to be full of meaning, and the world was meant to be full of love. As we look at the passage together, I first want to show you that it teaches us that life was meant to be full of beauty. Now, if you, if you just search or just a glance through it, you'll see that the word beauty doesn't show up here, but that doesn't mean that the idea is not there. In fact, if you look at this chapter, the first two chapters of Genesis, the idea of beauty is all over the place. This world that God is creating is eminently beautiful. We could infer that just from our own experience of the nature that we see as we look at the world around us and we can imagine um, stars and animals and plants being created. We can think that must have been beautiful because the world we know, we still see beauty in it. But also, as we look at the way God creates it, we see that there's a beauty, there's a carefully structured and ordered way in which he's creating the world. And I don't think it's just engineers who think that structure and order is beautiful. There is a beauty to it. There's a pattern. This is not chaos. This is not a mess. This is not like some other creation myths where there's a couple gods duking it out and the stuff that falls to the ground and is left over. That's creation. No, this is intentional. This is beautiful. In the first three days, God systematically creates domains of night and day, and then the sky and the sea, and then the earth and plants. And then the next three days, he systematically creates things to fill those domains, the sun, the moon, and the stars, to go in the night and the day, the, the water animals and the flying animals to go in the sky and the sea. 
and then the land animals and humans to populate and rule over the earth. It's beautiful. Even the way it's told is beautiful. And then the final testimony to its beauty is that God every day says, it is good. And then the sixth day, after he finishes all, he says, it is very good. See, now you and I, this, is, this isn't a revelation, we expect the world to be beautiful. You know, it's, we expect there to be a thing called beauty. We, we recognize it when we see it. We look for it all over the place. We look for it in other people. We look for other people to be beautiful. We see it in their faces, in their bodies, in their dress. We look for it and see it in natural landscapes. We see it in birds that fly. Uh, we see it in beautiful paintings. We see it, some people see it in classic cars. Some people see it in an elegantly solved equation. Uh, we see beauty in all sorts of places, but we see it. We expect it to be there. We, we, we believe that the world is meant to be a place where beauty exists. We know it in our hearts that that is there. Now, why? Do, why? Why? Why do we care so much about beauty? Why does it exist? Why do we think that there should be beauty in this world? It's because there was a beautiful God who made a world full of beauty and placed us in it. See, we've got an answer for that. According to the Bible, the world was meant to be full of beauty. But you know, not every story that people tell about the beginning of life gives you a reason for that longing for beauty that's in your heart. In fact, the main alternate story in our culture that is told about the beginning of life, um, the theory of evolution in a completely materialistic, like random chance sort of way, uh, has a really hard time explaining why there's beauty at all. If you, if you listen to the, the evolutionary theorists they try to explain beauty, but really what they're left with saying is it's just a myth. It's an artifact that's left over because of our ancestors. So the reason why you find a particular landscape beautiful is because at some point in time, your ancestors recognized that that landscape was a safe place with abundant food. And so it was beautiful. I mean, it, there, there was an appeal to it because it meant that you could survive there. And so that got passed on to you, and now you don't... You don't have those same needs that they did then, but you still got that, that heritage. And so you look at a thing, it's not inherently beautiful in a, as an ideal, as a transcendent experience. It's, it's, just, it's just that your ancestors thought that that was a safe, abundant land. Uh, or the beauty that you see in another person. It's not an inherent beauty. It's not a transcendent ideal. It's the fact that that, that symmetry of face or the roundness of hips suggests that that person would be an ideal mate and they would help you to survive and to reproduce. And that appeal, uh, signaling to you that your genes would be passed on if you made it with this person, has now gotten encoded into us and we call it beauty. I think that's a really depressing explanation of our existence. I think it's utterly inadequate. We believe that this world was meant to be filled with beauty. It's our experience. It's what we know. And it's there because it's been hard-coded into us by a beautiful God who created a beautiful world. See, the Bible story begins by telling us why we expect life to be full 
of beauty. It also tells us that life should be full of meaning. Life was meant to be full of meaning. Everybody, you, me, everybody, we believe that life is meant to have meaning. Uh, Everybody wants their life to count for something. Everybody wants to give their life to something bigger than themselves. Now, why is that? Well, again, evolution falls short at that point. There there is literally no meaning to life if evolution is true. It's, it's, It's inherent in the theory because everything's an accident. You are just a random accident. You are just the end result of a lucky series of mutations. That's why you're here. So to ask the question, what is the point of life, is nonsensical. There is no point. If there is a point from an evolutionary point of view, it's the, the point of life is to reproduce. It's to survive and pass on your genes. Now we know that life is more than that, don't we? We know that there's more meaning to life than that, and the Bible tells us, here's why you feel that way. It's because it's true. In Genesis 1.26, we see why we feel like we have meaning in life. It's because we were made for a purpose. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. bonus points here, but this little part of scripture, Bible scholars call this the creation mandate. This is a command from God at creation. He says, this is what it means to be a human. This is your marching orders. God says, here it is. First of all, you're created in the image of God. This is why you exist. Verses 26 and 27 says it a couple times. We were made in the image of God. Now what this means, at least is that there is some resemblance between us and God. God made us to be like him, sort of a family resemblance, that when you look at humans, in some ways you see aspects of the creator. God did this so that we would be little mirrors of his glory, walking around the earth, imitating him, doing good, creating like he created, uh, loving like he loves. And as we look at one another, as God looks on us, there's a reflection, a multiplication of his glory And who he is. See, God made us to bear his image and show his glory to one another and to the world. The way we do that is by ruling the earth. Verse 28, he blessed him. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So God says, here's how you do it. Just live. Here's the meaning to life. Yeah, having kids is part of it. But multiplying, filling the earth, ruling over it, being creative, inventing musical instruments and, and growing crops and harvesting them and, and creating calculus and, and making art and looking at the stars and figuring out how far away they are. And all this stuff that we do as humans, God says, I made you to rule the earth, to be the masters of creation, to be little versions of God, creating as sub-creators under the great creator. That's the meaning of life. I, I remember when I was in high school, I was working with a guy, and he, he threw out that question, oh, what's the meaning of life? Like it was some sort of giant philosophical showstopper. And even as a high schooler, I remember thinking, that's not a hard question. 
Now, it is a hard question if you believe in a completely naturalistic beginning. If you subscribe to the worldview of evolution, it's an impossible question. You're left with this nihilistic resignation. I mean, that's why some people kill themselves, because it doesn't make any sense. There is no meaning if there's no creator. But if you understand the true story that the Bible is telling you, you know why you have that longing in your heart for significance. It's because God has made you to live with purpose, to go out and live as a human being in this world reflecting his glory. That's the meaning of life. Life was meant to be full of meaning. See, life was meant to be full of beauty. It was meant to be full of meaning. It's also meant to be full of love. Again, you'll, you, you won't find anybody arguing this point. Life is meant to be full of love. I ran across a quote this week where one man said, unconditional love is the most powerful force in the universe. You know who said that? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, this billionaire investor who's got all the money you could ever want, and he says, love is the most powerful force in the universe. We know this. Love is, life is meant to be about love. That's a truth that's been written on our hearts. Evolution fails again to explain this adequately. Evolution will tell you that love that you have for your children, it's just a, a desire to keep them alive and propagate the species. That's where that's coming from. Protecting your young. Uh, that love that you might have for other people, it's really just because it's beneficial for your own survival to band together in like-minded groups of people. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's where that's coming from. It's not, not altruistic. It's not real love. It's just, just taking care of one another for your own benefit. And ultimately, love is just a survival mechanism. Like everything else in evolution, it just boils down to chemicals in your brain. There's no room for something as transcendent as love. But for the Bible, if you understand the true story of the Bible, you see that it's written in the very fabric of the story. In Genesis 2, we didn't read any of this, but what you see in Genesis 2 is a, an expansion of what happens on the sixth day. You kind of zoom in and see in more detail the creation of man and woman. And, and what you see here is that God creates man first. He creates Adam first out of the dust. And he lets him go through some stuff by himself. And then he, he makes this statement in Genesis 2.18. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the first time in the Bible story where God has said something is not good, so far, everything has been good. It's all been good. It's been good. It's been very good. What's not good? It's not good for Adam to be just by himself, a solitary human being. It's not good to have a human there without another human to love. That's what's not good. So this is a problem because humans are made in the image of God, and God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Look it up. God is love. To be made in the image of God means that we are made to love. The Bible tells us that the essence of who God is is love. So when he creates, he makes a world where love is central. This, this is not fully developed here, 
But, uh, but we see this in the doctrine of the Trinity, the very nature of who God is. Uh, the Trinity, I'll admit, it, it's a hard doctrine. A lot of people go off the rails there. It's where a lot of the cults come from. But this is where the Trinity really shines. This is where it's so good to be an Orthodox Trinitarian Christian. Because it explains for us why the world is, is about love, why love exists. See, um, we, we get hints of the Trinity. Okay, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. We get hints of the Trinity here in chapter 1. Um, we see in chapter 1, verse 1, that God creates the heavens, but then in verse 2, it's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. You know, later revelation in, in, in the book of John, we see that the word that creates, of God speaking, is actually Jesus. So God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all here. In Genesis 1, 26, you might have noticed that God said, let us make man in our image. It's caused people to scratch their heads for, for millennia. What, what's he saying there? Is that a reference to the fact that God is not Unitarian, but that there, he exists in a trinity? I think so. Of course, it, throughout the whole Bible, it, it's confirmed more and more as Revelation goes on that, that God does exist as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, each person fully God, each person distinct from the other person. Now, that's hard, but where's the payoff here? The payoff is, this explains why God is love. You see, if God were a Unitarian God that is only one person, you could not say that he is love because he would have existed at some point before anything else existed and he would not have been able to love at that point. You could say that he loves, that is, he created something later and that he loved that creation, but you could not say he is love. But the wonderful truth of who God is is Existing as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, one God, each person distinct, loving one another within the trinity. Mind blown, I get it, but it's there. God is love. His very nature is love, to exist in relationship with himself for all time, before time. See, the story the Bible is telling, you just peel it back a little bit, is that, that God is love and he has existed as love forever and at some point he overflowed with love and in that overflow of love he created a world and the very essence of that world is that there would be people in it who are made in his image and love one another. So it's no surprise that love is so strong in our hearts. I mean, you turn on the radio, scan through the stations. It doesn't take five seconds to find somebody singing about love. Why do we do that? It's because we're created by a loving God, a God who is love, to love one another. See, according to the Bible, as we just start with this picture of life as it was meant to be, we see that life was meant to be full of beauty. It was meant to be full of meaning. It was meant to be full of love. And all of us know this in our hearts. But I think a lot of us are buying into a story that really has no place for those truths. It's incompatible. As I was mulling it over this week, I couldn't shake the picture of a, of a kid who's been adopted and doesn't realize that he's been adopted. And I just got this picture of like this, this kid with flaming red hair. Okay? And his parents and siblings, they've all got dark hair, dark complexion. And At first he doesn't think anything about it. Because it's, well, it's mom and dad, it's my family, no problem. Grows up a little bit, and, and maybe he's one of the kids at the playground, and like, well, where'd you get your red hair? And he starts to think, where did I get my red hair? 
does some research and finds, you know, it's possible that you can get red hair from two dark-complected people. It's a recessive gene. And, and yet, and yet, he's taller than everybody in his family. He wears glasses. They're all perfect vision. He's got all these idiosyncrasies, different things that he does. Nobody else in his family does. And then one day, somebody says, hey, you're adopted. They introduce him to his birth parents. They both got flaming red hair. His dad's tall. His mom's nearsighted. They do the things that he does. And all of a sudden, life makes sense. It's liberating. He understands that's why I am the way I am. And I just want to gently tell you this morning, you're adopted. You are not the child of monkeys. You... You didn't come from, the, there's a reason why you have these longings in your heart. There's a reason why you feel like beauty is a real thing. Why you think that your life is supposed to have meaning. Why you believe that love exists and is a transcendent and powerful force in the universe. It's because it's true. It's because the story that God tells in his word is the true story about life as it was meant to be. Now this longing that we have for beauty, for, for meaning, for love, we, we really have a high expectations. I mean, we, we want it to be perfect. And that's not the way we see it now. But it is a good sign that at some point it was perfect. And at one day it will be perfect again. C.S. Lewis helps us out with this. He relates this longing in our souls to physical hunger. He says it's a proof that what the Bible teaches is true. He says a man's physical hunger does not prove that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. Okay, so he's saying just because you're hungry doesn't mean that you will get food or that you have food. But the fact that you're hungry suggests that food exists and that normally you're meant to be satisfied by eating food. He continues and says, In the same way, though I do not believe that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. See, hunger doesn't mean you have bread, but it proves that something to satisfy hunger exists. And soul hunger what we've been talking about today, this longing for beauty and meaning and love, it doesn't prove that you have it, but I think it proves that it exists, or at least that it existed. Now in the weeks to come, we're going to follow the storyline of the Bible and we're going to see what happened. If the world was created this way, if it was perfect, how did we get here where it's not? And, and then what, if anything, has been done to fix this problem? And do we have any hope for getting back there in the future? These questions are, in fact, what the Bible is all about. Because I don't want to give you a huge cliffhanger. Just sum it up. Here's, here's your cliff notes. Here's, here's where we're going. Here's where the Bible goes. It's that you were created for beauty and for meaning and for love. And you're only going to find that. You're only going to find satisfaction for that hunger in your souls in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. St. Augustine famously said, our hearts 
are restless until they find their rest in God. What he's saying is that we've got this longing, this, this hunger, and we can, we can go on vacation after vacation to the wonders of the world in search of beauty. And we'll still want to go on another one because we'll never be satisfied. Uh, you can work long hours and give all your creative energy to your work in a search for meaning. At the end of the day, you could be dissatisfied. You could give your heart to another com- human being completely and it will not meet your needs for love. All these things are pointers from God to him, to the one who made beauty, the one who gives us meaning, the one who is love. See, we're made by God for God. And the good news is that God has made a way for us to come back to him through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're sitting here today and you you don't know what that means, you say, well, how do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? How does that happen? I want to give you two options this morning. One would be come back for the next four weeks where we flesh that out more. And explain in more detail as we follow the story we learn in the Bible. How does God make a way for us to get back to that beauty, that meaning, that love, that significance through Jesus Christ? That's one option. Uh, Another option is for you to ask that question during our question and answer time that's going to follow the sermon. So you can get your phone out. You can text that question. How do I get right with God through Jesus Christ? Um, You can write it on a note. You can talk talk to me later. I'll give you a third option. Just... Call me, email me, grab me after the service, talk to me about that, whoever brought you, whatever. You need to get that right. Okay? But if, that, if you feel that in your heart today, that longing that says, I want that, I don't have it, then please don't rest until you do. Okay? Now, if you're sitting here this morning and, and you do know what I'm talking about, that you rejoice that you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ, then and here's my application for you. I'm going to close in prayer. And I want you to take some time as I close in prayer to just thank God. Thank God that he made a world of beauty and meaning and love and that he has brought you into relationship with him that you can understand that. I mean, how, do you understand how distressing and how, how depressing it is to live in this world and to believe a lie and to bang your head against the wall saying, I feel like there should be meaning to life, but I have no reason for it. I mean, you understand, intellectuals have committed suicide because of this, because they live in this disconnect between what they know is true in their hearts and what they believe is true in their heads. Praise God. Thank him that he has made you right with Jesus Christ, that you have a basis, a foundation for a coherent life. Thank him for loving enough to let us know him the source of everything good. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for your word and I'm grateful that you tell your story better than I can. Thank you that you write your story on our hearts, that we know what is right and what is true and that you resonate in our hearts as we read your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would work in us, work in us over the next few weeks as we read your word and study your word together, that we would come to a deeper understanding of who you are, of who we are, and what you have done, and that that would change our lives. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.